0: This is Interviews with Technical People with John Robertson and James Have you. a podcast where we interview technical people in STEM fields
1: to discuss the past, present, and future from their perspective.
0: And today we're joined by Anthony Worthington. Anthony is currently the manager of product design, hard good at Purple. Tony, welcome to the show. Great to be here. And we really want to ask you, Tony, so... What is it that
2: you do? Um, So what I do in my current role is kind of gather product definition. So at Purple, I work on mainly seat cushions and pillows. Um, If you don't know what Purple is, there's like a a startup now, kind of adolescent manufacturing company that produces beds. Um, But we also produce seat cushions, pillows, other comfort technologies. And so... I look at hard goods. It's like a, our light definition of it versus like soft goods is more sheets, covers, things like that, uh, and then hard goods is the actual product underneath, like the the gels typically. So, okay, so, am, so, so when
0: you say hard, you mean like physically hard to the touch, or, is there, or is there there? <laughs> it's relative?
2: Okay. Right. it's a gel, so it's
1: uh it's a little it's, squishy.
2: It's a little yeah. squishy, right? Yeah, that's what we kind of make our, our money off of—is saying that it's comfortable. So I wouldn't want to be on a you know a milk crate you know type <laughs> hard good, but yeah, with that right. So it's just the, essentially the the main component uh, of the product, and so defining what the end user is going to experience and what's important to the end user. So like we have column buckling technology, and so figuring out at what point or what force is going to make that column or that grid of columns buckle. And so like, I'll take take a video of of like me or, you know, several subjects sitting on a seat cushion to see how the the columns deflect and buckle and then identify that type of buckling and then try and find a test fixture that's going to represent that in our, our testing labs and then replicate that. So butt shaped fixtures.
0: <laughs> so, so you are talking about like in depth, detailed manufacturing of mattresses and cushions, right? Like, th-
1: uh, just to so set the
0: stage for everyone, because I mean, this is so different from anyone we've ever had the sh- on the show before, and probably a lot more relevant for a lot of people, <laughs> to be frank. You know, I think we all sleep on uh, some sort of mattress or soft. Something. yeah hopefully
2: people sleep on something um, y- yeah but if yeah. they don't you know they know where to go yeah, uh, yeah just, just, just a couple plugs during the podcast that's what I'm trying to do <laughs> I, I,
1: I want to ask a really cliche question but I'm gonna ask it anyway because sure. you, you do deal with you know kind of the quality insurance side of things but do you get to sleep on the job no not <laughs> <a> chance. <laughs> I mean, you got you to test and see how well it works.
0: How are you going to know how the mattress works or the cushion? Well, hang on. A lot of your products are not necessarily mattresses, but cushions, right? So do you get yeah. to sit on your product? I sit on a seat
2: cushion all day at work. Interesting. Interesting. You sit to stand desks and stuff. So figuring out to, you know, essentially how long people should be sitting or standing or what's best for a person is probably something else that we're, we're looking into.
0: Do you ever just go and sit on like a normal chair and be like, this is this is so hard. This is uncomfortable. I can't do it. I need my purple cushion. Or because like your your cushion must be so sensitive now to the feel of different cushions.
2: Uh, I would not say that I have a calibrated behind, if that makes sense. <laughs> um, it's funny. We can get into that a little bit. And this is like a big shtick for me when you talk about things like calibration or right. So imagine you have someone who's lying on a bed or sitting on a seat cushion you know, how do they, how, how well can they identify, you know, how hard or stiff that feels? I think
0: it's very subjective.
2: It is subjective, but there's other ways to like identify or, or verify that someone is capable of identifying differences in things. And so there's more, like a few methodologies and these are like, these are very six Sigma esque, if you will. Um, do you guys,
1: what do you mean by six Sigma?
2: Okay, so Six Sigma is like a problem-solving methodology where you take like a physical problem and then you break it down into a statistical problem and then you solve it statistically and then you can then solve it physically. That's like the, the high level. So you define what you need to do and then you figure out a way to measure it. We can talk about measurement systems Then you analyze that data um, and then you implement what you need to do um, and then you measure it again, obviously to see if your changes you know, make the difference or actually have the effect that you want them to have. And then you control that. So you measure it over a long period of time and you make sure that it's sustained. It's a huge issue. I think with most six segment uh, projects that engineering, especially manufacturing will do because um, any change that you do in manufacturing is going to have uh, an effect whether, you, no matter what you do. And I think all that, that gets lost with a lot of people and it's something that uh, maybe we should go dive into my, my background before I got to purple. Cause that'll like explain a lot about how I think and, and go about these things.
0: Let's do it. Let's hear the history of Anthony Worthington.
2: Sure. So I went to Stevens Institute of Technology in Hoboken, New Jersey. So I have, I have opinions about pizza.
1: <laughs> we'll get to that.
2: It's a great, it's a great school. Um, it's pretty pretty expensive, but there's really good return on investment because it's right next to New York City. So there's a lot of opportunities there. And then New Jersey super industry heavy. So there's a lot of opportunities um, within New Jersey. They have a really good – or I don't think they still do, but they had a really good co-op program. And so I, I co-opt for five semesters or so, and I co-opt for Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, which is oh, in nice Massachusetts. Place. Yeah, so that's that's my hometown, um, and I've got some roots there. So I was able to get my first internship or co-op there for eight months or so, working on the, uh, or Century, which is an AUV, um, which is like a cartographer AUV, autonomous underwater vehicle. Um, they kind of drop down, and then it maps the ocean floor. And then the Alvin submarine, which is like one of the, like deepest capable man submersibles in the world um i know like the the challenger like james cameron's challenger might have beat it at one point but i know we were doing upgrades on it where we had like a titanium sphere that was like laser welded and you know it's a super cool like construction and then you're like throwing that down to the bottom of the ocean with like tons Uh, of pressure i've
1: seen some of the titanium from that sphere and it's it's impressively yeah thick and heavy can can,
0: can it reach the deepest ocean depths that we know of i'd have to look that
1: up i'd have to look that up i say it might have gone down there
2: yeah Yeah. I, i haven't been there for probably what year was that 2010 so yeah 10 years or so yeah um so i can't speak too much on that it was a really great experience though um and kind of get an idea about how to maintain. A lot of it was maintenance um, as a co-op, and also doing some testing on their uh, implodable devices. Um, so you know, we're not worried about things blowing up. Or we're worried about things collapsing in on themselves. Mm-hmm. And they use like a like a syntactic foam, like a evacuated, some sort of evacuated material that uh, essentially can withstand a lot of pressure. And then also creates a lot of buoyancy, so it like looks like a wood block, right? But then and it feels really heavy, but it floats really well. So it's a it's a neat material. And I did a lot of like pressure testing. We throw it in a pressure chamber and verify that you know it passed the test, and then bring it back up. It was a lot of plug and chug stuff as a as a co op there.
0: When you were at Stevens, what was your major? What engineering. Mechanical engineering. Okay. Yeah,
2: they've got they do mechanic or their and their bachelor's is actually a bachelor's of engineering. It's not a bachelor's of science, okay. which is weird and complicated. But they have a design spine. They require to take design courses every semester, and they have like a very rigorous course load. So like your typical credit load is like nineteen or eighteen instead of like where a lot of other places it's like maybe twelve.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So you got. They're, they make a workhorse out of you. They they have a super heavy workload, and they have that specific design spine. Um, and they, I don't know, this might not be the, the biggest thing, but you know, they they essentially make it so you have to figure it out for yourself. For a lot of things. I'm sure a lot of you dealt with that in in college, but when you're doing these design courses, it's pretty broad, and which makes you have to figure it out and kind of be creative or resourceful. And that was really beneficial. Uh, so anyway, after Hui, I went and I got another internship at Ethicon Endosurgery, which is a Johnson & Johnson company. And I was actually an R&D there in their product development group. And we were I was helping ver- do verification for a class two medical device, um, which is like secure strap open. So it's on the market. So I can talk about this. That was like, whatever, nine years ago.
0: What does class two mean in this context?
2: Uh, it means that it's going to be inside the body, I believe. That's kind of my my broad definition. That's probably wrong. But okay. essentially, it's it's implanting things. It's like they're in ventral her- uh, hernia repair. So the hmm. a patient would be open and they'd be operating on them versus maybe like a class one medical device. It might be something that doesn't actually penetrate the body. That's broad terms. I'm sure there's some uh, you know ISO 1345 or... Like, some other quality requirements that I didn't really get into too much in that role. But I'm sure I could find some definition from the FDA site and going through like a, a 510K submission, which is essentially proving equivalence of the effectiveness of that product compared to other products. And that's another, that's a whole, that's a whole other podcast getting into that. <laughs> but I worked there, I did some verification studies and got into a little bit of ip stuff got on a couple patents luckily i didn't probably deserve to get on those but i'm on them and um and then i also kind of set myself up to get an internship in germany working for ethicon as well on their on the other side which is like exploratory r&d so i went from the fixation side in the u.s to the mesh side in germany which is more like their so, I don't know. I'll give a, a brief overview of how to repair a hernia. It's just like a an opening in your intraperitoneum or your like stomach liner. And then you put a piece of mesh over it and then you tack it in place. That's it. That's how you do it. Good definition. All right. Give me give me a doctorate. Um, <laughs> so looking at different things that are really important for ingrowth, um, reducing adhesions, and then also discomfort and stuff. For patients were the things that we were kind of looking at and doing different, you know, patterns and layering of, of materials over did, there.
0: Did you find it uh, easy or difficult, or just neither, to go from sort of constructing like underwater drones to going to kind of the medical device field? Like, wh- is there a difference in, in attitude or culture going between those two?
2: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and then you go to mattresses, and it's very different. I get told- yeah we're not building medical devices uh which is a reminder to me because like i think the, the the most influential things that happened to me were when i worked at Bechton dickinson which is another biomedical manufacturing company after at the con so whatever went to germany did exploratory r&d learned some you know broken german and learned how to be punctual they're super punctual over there it's amazing that's like a big thing They'll stand outside the door for a meeting and not walk in until it's exactly that time, even though there's no one in the room.
1: But they're all there ready.
2: <laughs> yeah. Or if they're at like an airport and like, you know, the the time is supposed to be like the time to board and you just see like six people look at their watches and like stand up in unison at like the twelve oh five like call and then there's like a delay and they all just kind of shift around. You can see them looking around like kind of nervously, just like sound like very uncomfortable with the fact that something's not happening on time. It was great. So they were, they It's a good experience to get a, to see that over there. And they're also they're pretty blunt. They'll they'll tell you if you got a bad idea. They're not gonna like beat around the bush, which I thought was pretty refreshing. Coming from the U.S., I think a lot of the times we're pretty PC or like gentle with our our thoughts on things. And obviously, you have to learn how to work with people. But over there, I think a lot of people were able to understand. We're, they're working as a team, and, and it's not like oh, you're a bad thinker. It's maybe that idea wasn't great. I don't think we should do it. And it, I thought it was pretty effective, and I enjoyed it. But that's me. I'm I'm kind of <laughs> I'm pretty type A, a little harsh.
0: Did you so. take on that trait now? Are you
2: quick to to just say when an idea is bad? I've learned to uh, soften it a little bit. Ah. I still, I, I, I I'm sure my colleagues at other companies would beg to differ. So. Um, so I anyway, get down in Germany and then I end up getting a position in a rotational program. Uh, so a manufacturing development program, which is three one year rotations um, as a manufacturing engineer, typically um, at Becton Dickinson, which is a big biomedical company. They do a lot of uh, diabetes care as well as like IVs, um, syringes, things like along those lines. They have like the original like lure lock patent, which is essentially how you can connect a, a needle to a, syringe and so they were like big on that and so they have a ton of of that industry covered and I worked in Nebraska for a year doing pharmaceutical medical devices uh, which is essentially glass syringes so that was really
1: interesting Uh, and then so you were making the syringes
2: uh, correct you're making the glass syringes so not the needles but we were we would get those cannula from a different site or a different plant which is actually down the road in that town and then we would take essentially uh, tubes of glass and then form them into syringe shapes and then they go through and we clean them and then they would insert uh, a cannula into them which is like that that needle that allows you to stick someone and, and drop blood and then you also put a plunger So you can actually evacuate and draw stuff out with it. Um, Or we do pre-filled stuff as well. Um, So there's some places where you'd actually be filling with a vaccine or something like that. We'd ship them out to Pfizer. And then Pfizer would then... It's funny because everyone knows Pfizer now because of the COVID vaccine. But yeah, we were working with Pfizer and Amgen and a few of these other companies.
1: I say before the vaccine, I only knew Pfizer because of Viagra. (laughs) But I guess you don't put that in a syringe
2: helping helping men everywhere or I don't helping couples everywhere let's say it like that uh, no I don't think we put that stuff in this ring yeah so it was there and then I was in uh, project management which is also like very pretty harsh on project managers because you learn like the kind of gold standard of a project management which is scope schedule cost there's like a little iron triangle and we do a lot of planning sessions and so my job was a lot of it was kind of teaching people at other sites that might not have project management backgrounds what's going to be really important for them for their project and then do a project kickoff and so like go through your charter and like talk about what you're actually going to do talk about your scope talk about what's going to be the most flexible or least flexible uh, aspect of the project so like is it does it have to be done by this date or does it have to do XYZ or does it have to cost this much And it's like, you have to balance those things. And one of those things is going to be more flexible than the others. And that's kind of how you have to manage projects. And then you, you chart it all out, what your plan is. And then look at like the critical path, kind of shortest pole in the tent mentality where there's some things that are all going to link up and that's going to be the longest path to get to the end of your, your project. Mm. So there's other things that can slip but they're not going to affect the overall end goal of your project. They're all side things. They're not on the critical path. If that makes sense.
0: Interesting. So you spent some time in project management. Was that training all kind of like on the job to do project management or was there a more formal training to learn this
2: iron triangle? I went, I went to a project management course that they had at BD. So like Mm -hmm. they're massive corporate and they have a really good project management course. Um, Mm -hmm. I guess I didn't, appreciate enough until i left and then you go and you i think that happens a lot of the time you go places and you don't really appreciate like how good some things are until you leave and then you're like oh okay (laughs) so yeah i took like a formal project management course i didn't get like my pmp certification i think that's like professional project manager or something like that i didn't do that but I took that course and I kicked off a bunch of like 10 projects between, you know, Mexico, the U S Canada, like some of them were, you know, $10 million plus construction projects for, or validations of like line transfers of big automated manufacturing equipment and just kind of working with a lot of different teams on a lot of conference calls and a lot of travel. Um, you're, you know, went back when you could travel, (laughs) Or wow. um, that that was part of the job. So, so we know we know right away this was a while ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was 2015 or wow. so. Um, and I had a really good mentor there too. Shout out to to Pat Mahan, big guy. He's he was a uh, the mentor in that position who was really strong um, and taught me a lot about project management and gave me a lot of good insight. He was he was super solid, one of the best guys I've ever met. So. Uh, then I went to Utah. That's how I ended up in Utah, James, is my final role was in Sandy, Utah. And I worked in a high-volume automation, high automation, like high volume automation line. Um, so we were making push-button blood collection sets, which were like the little wing sets you get when you draw blood with an IV. And we were making somewhere between 140,000 of those a day. I think that was the goal. Um, That's insane. So, yeah, you're making a lot of parts per second.
1: So at that point uh, you're doing robotics engineering as well.
2: Something I, uh, yeah, we, we need to have technicians. Um, but the big thing in make manufacturing or it's going to be your, your, your OEE, your operational or yeah, operational equipment efficiency, something like that. I'm, I'm bad. <laughs> Clearly I don't know these things, uh, but you're looking essentially at your your scrap, your downtime, and your cycle rate. So, essentially, how how fast your things are moving, your cycle rate. If you're you have segmented things, so like if there's an operation, you have like a, a pallet that slides in there. Then you do an operation, then the pallet slides again. But so it,
0: would, so would, would the metric just be like maximizing the number of product produced per unit time, whatever that unit time is? Like that's the
2: game in that situation. Yeah.
1: And probably cost because you gotta cost yeah. the, the cost and time are both efficiencies. Yeah, yeah,
2: point. Yeah, and so that's where downtime, right, is is that one. And then cost is scrap. So if you're if you're burning product and you're you're losing, you know, one out of every five, you're losing twenty percent of your product. So you're not gonna hit your numbers. Good kind of like a industry, I think industry standards probably around eighty to eighty-five percent OEE, of uh, what you're calculated efficiency is what is OEE so operational equipment efficiency let me double check that let me do a quick little fact check let's get that yeah, checking in real time this is great yeah overall equipment effectiveness whatever overall yeah. equipment equipment
1: effectiveness. effectiveness. I have a yeah. little fact check from earlier too okay um Alvin hasn't gone to the deepest spot in the ocean but it it has done a lot of the mid-atlantic ridge and is well known for it was the submarine that explored Titanic there
0: you go. Yeah. See, it, it sounds like we need to get someone from that world well, in on the show, but you know, I well, can
1: get,
2: I can get you plenty of people.
0: All right, then. to love. talk your ear off. All right, um, to our listeners, look, we'll look forward to this. But back to Tony. Uh, yeah. yeah.
2: So you look at operational, whatever equipment effectiveness or overall, overall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That one. <laughs> um, and like you have to, you you're, you should be measuring it throughout the line and throughout your, your entire process. So you're looking at, you know, parts in versus parts out. You're looking at how quickly some stations are cycling, uh, and you're looking at, you know, how often there's like a downtime moment. So in automation, you don't want a machine to beat itself up. So there's sensors that are like going to tell you if it's out of position. And so for whatever reason, if something moves out of position or something gets in the way it's going to stop the machine. And so when you stop the machine, you're not running. So then you're not making parts. And so there's different levels of accumulation where in the line, you're going to have things where like you can, you can get away with, you know, not building one or two cycles because you're going to accumulate further on down the line. You have like sections or um, buffers essentially built within the line. And so you're not actually going to lose anything by having downtime at some stations depending on how your your line structure is or how, how the layout of the line is as well as the, how packed it is. Um, so how many pallets maybe you'd be putting if it's like a, a conveyor system, how many pallets you can actually pack on there is going to have a big effect on, you know, your abundance and the amount like what materials ready to be worked on. And so you never want to, this is another one. It's called starving a system. So you always want to have, Pallets ahead of a system so that it has something to work on. If it doesn't have anything to work on, it's starved. And then if on the other side, if something isn't moving in front of it, it's blocked. Hmm. And so if you look at where something is the most blocked and the most starved, you're probably gonna find your bottleneck on the line because if you're, if you're, or sorry, least starved, least blocked, because that means it can't keep up with anything else. And that anything else is never going to like, is always going to produce things to move faster than it. So Least starve, least block will be your bottleneck. Sorry, it's been like three years since I've done this. So.
0: Interesting. That, that is a little counter, counterintuitive. So you find the ones that are least bottlenecked, and that's and
2: that's
1: an indication. It's, it's of, actually
2: probably the slowest one. Yeah, because if, if it's never blocked, right, that means it's working on something slower than the station. Yeah. But next to it, Got the one
1: it. one downstream from the bottleneck is yeah, uh, it's actually moving faster. Least blocked yeah
0: so the, interesting so the, so the yeah. stations that always got something to
2: do it always has something to do is actually a problem is they're probably it probably awkwardly... it's probably the slowest station yeah because it can't get it done in time right and,
1: and then you wear the machine out too
2: yeah it, it's it's all efficiency right like that's yeah. that's where you really get down to is being super efficient and you can start like other things that I'd have to do sometimes is I'd look at why is the station moving slow? Why? And you look at parts per minute coming out of it. And typically you have like a, a machine enterprise system, which is hooked up and is essentially going into a bunch of, a bunch of computers and spitting out. Um, we call it MES. That was like one system that we use, but there's also like L2L. There's a lot of different, um, programs that can do this. And they tell you how fast your line is running or how, you know, how much scrap you have, how much downtime you have. And it's telling you that live. So you have all the the data. Yeah. You're looking at these numbers and you're looking at each station and which station is causing, you know, the most disruption to your line like either by scrap or it's slow. And typically you'll look at that and that will tell you, okay, like this is actually running at a slower cycle rate than it was supposed to. What's wrong here. And then you go and you, you might have to troubleshoot it and you look at how the system works And if there's something that's on an air cylinder, right? It's like, oh, this air cylinder is making these long cycles. So so imagine something moving, just actuating back and forth, right? But and you you kind of you can listen to it, you can see it, and you have to watch and see like what within that station, right? So it's, it's like a pick and place, or something's grabbed and it's it's ready to move, and then something else has to move over to it and then drop it in, right? So that thing that's always holding that other piece ready to go in place, and then there's always waiting for the other item to be actuated over to it and then dropped in. You look at that air cylinder and you maybe you just look at the stroke length. So, like, how far is that thing moving? Does it actually have to move that far, or is it over moving itself? You know, is it wasted a a wasted move or distance, or does do you need to crank up the air on it? Hopefully you don't. I mean, that's something you don't typically want to tamper with anything. Cause like I said before, any change you make is going to have some sort of effect and likely, you know, just watching a couple of cycles or something, you're like, Oh yeah, turn up the air. And then you start, you know, banging it into a hard stop and then you get a bunch of wear and then you've caused a problem that, that comes up, you know, two days later. And so like, it's really difficult to kind of balance it all. But, you know, looking at like, for instance, like air cylinders with stroke lengths, if you, essentially move your hard stops you can reduce the length of that stroke and and reduce cycle time like that's something that a lot of people just don't think about when they set something up you want to make sure that you're actually moving probably the least amount of distance so that especially with an air cylinder so that you're perfectly just like instead of like sorry that's my my acoustic uh representation of (laughs) air cylinders
0: It's, it's so clear now um, yeah. I have a bunch of questions, so and and I kind of want to poke into this what you're saying. And you, you mentioned it earlier about how every change you make to the engineering is going to have effects to other systems downstream. Effects downstream, hundred percent, yeah. So, like, how do you balance that? Where, say, you're going to make changes to the manufacturing line, um, how do you ensure that the quality of your final product is unchanged or you know improved or whatever it is? Like, because I know sometimes there can be a delay in time between making those changes and say. subtle changes that might appear down the lines. Like what, how did you, this is, this is what
2: BD did really well. Um, and it's change control change. So they have a change control system. So you have like an engineering change request and then they make a request that, okay, we want to change something on the line. then you have to, you have a, a board essentially of your operations group. So typically someone in maintenance, someone in engineering, someone in quality, someone in, and I wasn't in quality at this point in time. I was just in like, I was a manufacturing engineer. So I was engineering and then you have operations or production. um, And then sometimes like supply chain, depending on how big your group is or or what your product is. That board evaluates, you know, does this affect form fit or function of, of the device. And then you also look, and then you have, if you have a really robust system like BD did, you have a change request form. And so it goes through this, all these tick marks, And so it's like, is there a change in material? It's like, if yes, you know, now we have to validate that vendor and do a vendor validation, Hmm. which is things start taking a lot longer because you have to double check everything. And then you have to go, all right, so let's say we're going to change uh, a material within our system and it has to have these output values. So let's say you have a plastic part. And the plastic part has to have a certain diameter. It needs to, you know, there's a an upper limit and a lower limit to that diameter um, that will work with your other, you know, component that you're gonna insert it into. So, getting back a little bit into Six Sigma and quality, you'd have to verify essentially. It's called like like CPK, um, and that's a it's like your capability essentially. Um, CP versus CPK. So oh, I'm probably gonna mess this up, but essentially imagine you're trying to drive a car into a garage. Okay. And the, imagine that the garage doors are too narrow for the car to get through. Right. It's cause you have too much variation in your process. Your process is the car and you have your limits, but you're essentially, you're going to shave off edges of your car <laughs> because is too tight of a tolerance for you to hit. You're, you have too much variation um, mm-hmm. in your system. And then you can also have an offset um, CPK. I'd have to look that up. If you're offset, essentially, what it means is that your car can fit, but your car's, the center of your car isn't aligned to the center of the garage. The center of your car is aligned to the, the, the edge of the garage. So half of your stuff will work and half of it won't. So you can so you have you have a narrow process, right? You don't have a lot of variation, but you're misaligned to your target, and so you would do a validation of the new material or these new, this new outside diameter of your plastic component, and you'd verify that out of you know 315 pieces that they give you, all of them are within this process tolerance or this you know this garage door size. They're all gonna fit. If they don't, there's an acceptable rate. So it's like typically like a, a CBK of of 1.3 is like an industry standard for acceptability, for accepting a vendor for a new component or a change in a component. Or depending on how robust your system is, like that device might be like, like 1.5, which means that your door, your garage door is 1.5 times as big as your car. Hmm. So you have space on the side. So it's very unlikely that you're going to hit the edge. If you are centered to the middle of the garage.
0: Sounds like a lot of what you're talking about here is process variability, right? And yeah. quantifying that mm-hmm. and then understanding w- what you're referring to as six Sigma, right? So like yeah. it, it likely most of the product that you would insert would work fine, but there there's some known percentage that will not work because of this.
2: Yeah. You're, you're dealing with a lot of unknowns and uncertainty in yeah. manufacturing just cause like things happen, right? There's tolerance, stack ups, there's Someone, you know, forgets to press a button, right? Not everything's like pokey or like idiot-proofed in, in systems. And so sometimes there's like flash on your components that, you know, for whatever reason, they got a different material, they didn't have a controlled facility, and uh, the, the cure time changed by two seconds, and now they've produced additional flash on their components like you can't control everything in the world. You have to deal with a certain amount of uncertainty. And so then you just kind of build around that where your, your tolerances typically are big enough that you're not going to have any issues.
0: So, so just re- to relate it to an industry that I know better, which is aerospace, for example. Um, so it's pretty standard practice for the aerospace industry to have like acceptance testing. And I feel like we have low enough volume output for that to be important. In other words, there's some test that's done to every single product that exits your line to verify that it, is within your your known requirements. Yeah. But I feel like that'd be hard to do when you're dealing with the volumes that you're talking about, you know, hundreds of thousands of product.
2: You do sample sizes, right? So like you're you have a, a yeah. sample size that's now going to represent, you know, a larger like you like I said, you take 315, 315 uh-huh. components. And then if like all of those are like perfect, yeah. you get pretty good confidence that you know, or if depending on how important it is, so this goes, this goes to a deeper level. Now you get to like failure modes, effects analysis, Mm -hmm. like an FMEA or FMEA, depending on how you, I say FMEA, I can't handle FMEA. You you go through and you look at what the effect or this change is. Is this a component that is actually going to, you know, have a severe detriment or risk um, to the end user or your end goal? Mm -hmm. Um, So in your, your case, right, there might be something that's like, you know, Uh, flight integrity or something along those lines. Um, If that's affected by this component or this item, it has to be checked a certain number of times to have a certain amount of confidence that it's going to work.
1: One summer I worked in an industry. um, There was a company that made a device overseas and due to copyright law had to move it back to the States. And um, so I was just kind of doing assembly in house um, and, Bring it back to the States hurt their bottom line costs so much that they did quality control on every one to make sure that it was going to work because they needed the revenue from it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. It was also a small enough process that, I mean, it was, you know, 15 of us making these, you know, at two shifts a day.
2: Yeah. And you're doing hundred percent inspection probably on that. And you've got, you know, yeah. you you know, you're like, again, your key output variables or your yeah. you know, key product output variables, that's that's critical. Right. Those are the things that if this does not work and this is essentially how you like all your your development is, if this stuff isn't right, your components not going to work. Right. Are, to, so
0: so Tony, to the level where you, know, you scrutinize your output to whatever statistical analysis you need, how much of those controls Typically, come from the companies, or since you are working with like biomedical things, things that interface with people, are there like other federal, state legal requirements that you need to abide by? Um, like, what's the interplay there in those industries?
2: So, I don't know exactly. I don't feel like I have enough grounds to, to to inform. Yeah, on one way or another, I would say like so. There are quality systems, so like typically FDA follows like ISO ISO thirteen four eighty five. Mm-hmm. um and within that they have to your company is on the line to say you have verified that this works okay and so like you 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 have done verification and so there's design there's like in r&d there's design controls where you go through and you you verify and you have to like, show these certain things and there's certain methods of qualifying your your product um and then so I don't know what the industry controls are. I know BD specifically had a ton of controls and that's again, what they do really well is validate. So you have a, a installation qualification an operational qualification and a production qualification yeah. where you have to run three batches or you yeah, your you like three work orders essentially, which could be, you know, if a work order is 20,000 products. So you have to run 60,000 products with like with, you know, zero defects to the change. So maybe you have defects online, something different, but you have zero defects based on this thing. And you you run that and you you verify that, okay, the change didn't have any effect on this mm-hmm. and that we're still able to run. And that's like BDs. That's There's this very high level, I think, it might be all biomedical. I'm not sure. I know that that's, I feel like that's an industry standard. I don't know if there's like a specific legal requirement within that. But typically mm-hmm. I know I, with, with friends and people that work at other biomedical companies, you do a, you do a three lot validation for uh, production qualification, different number of part components, right? So like if you're making something like heart valves and you're only making, you know, a hundred per lot, you know, that's different than if you're making a hundred thousand per lot, mm-hmm. uh, as far as the sample size, And so there's typically, you know, less, you accept on, you know, zero rejects, you reject on one, one, uh, reject essentially, or, or one failure, you, you fail it and you don't, it doesn't work. And you have to, you know, quarantine all the product, verify it all again, see if any of it would be good. If not, you know, how are you going to do that? And then you also can't run that system anymore. And then you have to go back to what you're doing before and then continue to run and then you're going to do another, you know, you do another validation run um, with the changes, and so you've you've communicated your deviation, yeah. So like you you have to you have to write in your report about what the deviation was, what you've done to correct that issue, um, if there's a deviation to your your protocol, and and then maybe that that might be allowed to, to to be qualified if it goes through that rationale and gets signed off by a certain number of people deviations essentially if you if you go you you have to write a protocol about how you're going to do your testing and how you're going to actually verify everything and if there's a change to that um, like the size of something or there's a change to how something happens you can write that deviation and sometimes you can get that validation to pass but if if you don't I, I, I threw deviation the wrong time but if you do fail, right. And you have to hit a certain CPK value that was like, you'd have to hit, you know, CPK of this, CPK of this, CPK of this in order oh, uh, to,
0: what, what is CPK?
2: That's like their capability. Essentially. It's like, you have to show that your, your, your variation is low enough that you're, you're not going out of tolerance with the yeah. of building. And so you have to hit those. Those are your, your standards that you've rejected that you you're going to be this good. And you actually have to hit them. If you don't hit them, then you'll fail your validation and then you've just wasted a bunch of money. Yeah. So it's, uh, it gets super deep, but BD had a really robust system for doing mm-hmm. their validations. So when you go and yeah, I did that for you know two and a half, three years mm-hmm. doing a lot of maintenance, getting to a lot of PMs. PMs are super important for manufacturing. It's like your preventive maintenance. Mm-hmm. Like if you don't, Keep that up or you, you have to keep that on like a very consistent schedule and you have to have the right people doing the turning the right wrenches in order to, to make sure that that stuff's done. Right. So, yeah, it
1: Is that of- is it, is it, oh, preventative maintenance on your, your machines that are making all of this or just in the yeah. process? No, you're on the machines on any of those
2: components, oil and stuff, uh, greasing stuff, repairing things, evaluating things. Like, yeah, it has to be done. If it doesn't everything, your OEE drops, Overall equipment effectiveness, yeah, I think and I so you
1: it. you can't shut the line down because you
2: can. Like you have to, like you, you'll you'll have you don't want to shut it down for a long time period of time, and your planners will typically plan that out. So,
1: well, I was saying if you have a if you have a catastrophic failure because of don't, not doing preventative maintenance, you'll shut the line down, and yeah, oh yeah, planned time. Planned time is a lot easier to deal with than unplanned
2: time. Yes, and so. so
0: When you were doing all this, there was probably some fraction of your time that was devoted toward like unexpected issues, right? Things that would come up, and you'd have to troubleshoot them. And then also those routine efficiency improvements that you were talking about, you know, investigating every every different uh, 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 subset of of the manufacturing. Like, was there a breakdown of the time? Like, how much was spent to both, or was it just
2: fluctuated every day? Firefighting. So, like, if it happens. Your number one priority is to get that line back up and running. Mm-hmm. So that's your priority. So if you're in a meeting and something happens, and then typically your mechanics can handle it, like electromechanics or or your typical maintenance team that's going around watching the machines running things, they can typically fix it. Um, and then you have a little bit of downtime, and then it comes back up. Um, or some things are, you know, do we want to? You have to you have to balance. Do we want to take this down for an hour to get you know one percent more? You know less scrap by taking it down for an hour and you know you have to balance those things and you have to figure it out or we're going to be fine we're going to hit our, our production values it might cost a little more but we're going to hit our outputs and that's like the bottom line that you really have to hit for a lot of things Is like you know, hit your
1: numbers how, how much of those numbers when when you're changing processes you know just little tweaks Is that something you can just kind of do with a gut instinct or is that something we have to come up with a plan, go through meetings, discuss it, send it to the on,
2: on how invasive it is. Right. So form fit function, those are the things. So like adjusting the stroke length on a, on an air cylinder, nothing. Right. But putting a new inspection system in definitely going to go through change control or, you know, changing how something happens or adding in like a kickoff, even like a kickoff where you can, take Parts that were supposed to be scrapped and then you know they can actually get used again, like all that stuff would be under change control. Um, try to I think of some other changing the height of things, so like installing something that's gonna you know level it if it comes in contact with a product, it's probably gonna have to go through change control. Um, a lot of the val like the change control things would then require validations. So we're gonna do this change now, we're gonna run 4,000 parts through this. And, and then we're going to test each one of these parts to make sure they retract all the way so like one big thing was like you have a, a retractable needle so you press a little button and then whoosh, retracts back so if you do anything with the springs if you change anything on the springs you have to verify that okay this is still going to retract this is like a safety device so that like practitioners don't get stuck so like They have it in, you draw blood, then you press the button and it retracts. And then you don't, you know, there's no way you're really going to get stuck by it. So if you change anything on the springs, now you need to take like 4,212 parts and you run the whole line. Then you have people open them and then press the button and retract them and record. Yes, this retracted
1: 4,000 times. It's a lot of work. Yeah. So there's a lot of testing and reporting going on in this industry then. Yeah, there's a ton. It's all like... It's like all
2: paperwork for the most part yeah. but you're, if you're good at it though and then you know what you're actually going to do you pre-write your reports like you you can you know it's important you, you give your explanation a lot of it's like to to meet to meet audits it's all pre-written and then you you fill in so they have really good templates and then you fill in you know when you're giving your explanation of things this went well we hit this this is why this worked the end like just keep it super simple and, and go through that. And hopefully, and then if you have a deviation, you can, then you, then it's kind of a little bit of writing the deviation and either you pass or you say, all right, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna rerun this. Um, and then again, make knowing what your like, your capability values are that you need to hit. Um, and then acceptance criteria for a number of failures versus like, all right, we can, you can reject uh, we we did this, num- this sample, right? And we need a large enough sample that we're allowed to have one defect, and we accept on one, we reject on two. So that's like acceptable quality limits (AQLs), if you will. We don't always do it that that way, um, but some some places will do it like that, where you have your acceptable quality limit. You know, you can have it's just a a, a plug and shove version of understanding what your capability is and that you're like allowed to have you know, one read, one defect per, you know, 300. And that's acceptable for validating or verifying that, you know, your new system or your new process works. Uh, so okay. I'm sure it, I'm sure you get chirped out on LinkedIn or something like that. If anyone who like listens to this and then tells me how wrong I am, but there's, <laughs> I, I haven't done it for, for three years, but that was like, that was probably the most in depth. I was on call twenty four seven, doing line support. We were in some massive back order, and so it was like all hands on deck. I come in on the weekends and stuff. Like it was, it was pretty intense. And we had to. We eventually got our, our efficiency up. We went through, and um, we had still a, a good team. We got our maintenance squared away. We had I think we had one consultant come in. Um, who was really strong in increasing, you know, effectiveness of the line, and had some of his own theories that worked out really well, and then just overall some other things just kind of worked better. I and mean, we made, we had projects where we we looked for those efficiencies, and eventually we got it. But that was a a super intense group to work within, and like numbers to hit it was like there's a lot of burnout from that
0: did you did you find it fulfilling ultimately getting it no. running
1: no why
2: <laughs> it's like like you, it, there's always going to be the same issues like turnover right turnover is always going to be something where you, you know you do great and then like someone moves on and now you need to get you need to retrain people like training's super important you'll have that and then like two years later just discontinued one of the lines that we were working on Oh man. Yeah. Like I like get just like, oh yeah, we're we're gonna relocate this. <laughs> and they or, or just scrap the whole line just sent it to the dump. Like <laughs> Oh all your hard work. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I mean. I'm like you at some point you can't you can't take too much of it home with you.
0: Let me uh, I, I, I wanna <laughs> ask you a question, because I, I find this this world fascinating and probably a much needed skill set for people to, to have you know for young people you know like what what advice would you give to someone who's like interested in doing this type of work you know that hearing you right now and it sounds interesting sounds like something they want to do you know what, what what kind of advice what kind of mindset helps you out for doing this type of work what would i
2: t- what, what would i tell my interns uh yeah
0: exactly yeah or your younger self
2: <laughs> god everyone wishes they could go back and tell your younger self you know what to I mean, a a lot of that's probably repeated advice that I got, um, from, from people. And a lot of that is like, don't, some things you just can't take to heart. Like depending on how it depends on the person, right? So different people have different personalities. And and when you manage, you manage individuals. You don't manage the same way for every single person because you have different personalities, everyone's going to take things differently and you have to kind of know your, your personnel and and people that you work with. And so people notice for me, I, I took things very personally. Um, and telling me to like, Hey, don't take it as personally was probably good advice where, you know, don't, you know, you're going to put in a lot of effort and stuff like this, but it's not the end of the world. Like you need to go home, you need to sleep, you need to like take care of yourself and like enjoy your, or like not let this like own you. And that was probably the, the best advice for me in that kind of time. But trust, but verify is, is always going to be a gold standard of engineering we're like, great. Like, I trust you. I'm just going to verify it. <laughs>
0: um I always thought that phrase was kind of wrong. Like, oh, it no, ju-
2: absolutely not. That is like the greatest phrase of all time. No, but in it, my it, opinion.
0: it, but it doesn't make any sense though. It should just be verify like trust or no or don't trust. doesn't matter. You just have to verify. I feel like people, you put in the word trust just to make people feel better.
2: You're working with people though. And like, yeah. if you can't maintain those relationships, like, Oh yeah, I trust you. I just got to verify it. Like, that that makes it like, oh yeah, they like, they they understand. And having that, like, just like, I know you're good, but like, I'm not going to be like, oh, you're like, you did this. I'm definitely going to verify. Like having, (laughs) that's the opposite. (laughs) Right. So like you, you need to maintain those relationships and, and who you work with. Cause like, if you lose someone from your company, it takes a really long time to fill that position. Um, like turnover and this is like when you get into like we'll get we talk about like technology or things we're worried about right like one of the biggest things i'm worried about is we don't have technical people replacing all these older generations that were like all right yeah i went to like a a vocational school and i got this position the the quantity of people by percentage of the population i do not believe is increasing (laughs) Meanwhile, we talk about manufacturing in the US, like where we're gonna beat people is through automation. We're not gonna beat through people through through labor costs. We have to beat people through automation, and, and to do that, you have to have skilled skilled workers and skilled technicians, but no one's getting, you know, no one's getting drawn towards those fields for the most part. It's hard to find good technicians. And especially with our replace the capabilities, a lot of things we can replace. We can replace components, and you see, in my opinion, it's probably not good to just replace things because you don't know what's going on. It's like you need to understand what's going on and what you need to actually fix instead of just to replace. Sometimes it's easier and faster just to replace a component, or you have like setups ready so that it's just like a, all right, where's, do you see like a 4V Ferrari when they just change the whole brake system and they would just change the entire brake system instead of one component? And like, that's like a, a way of doing it is, is it's faster, right? If you're in a race, um, it doesn't mean you maybe understand what's going wrong <laughs> with your, with your line. And, and so we have that where if you have something wrong, do you fix it? Do you weld it? Do you mend it? And you can't, can't cause it's made out of plastic. And so you typically like your phone case, you don't fix your phone. Right. Right. Like how, like how many people have lawnmowers that they're actually going to fix now? It's like, no, I'm going to buy a new one. And I feel like that has come with, I guess, with change and it's cheaper, right? It's, it's, it's technically more effective for people. It creates more waste, but it's more effective to do that. And so we don't have as many people the mindset of maintainers, of people that can't do constant maintenance on things and the The percentage of the population that we need to be doing that is decreasing, and we need that in order to to be strong in manufacturing.
0: How are we going to incentivize incentivize people to do that? Like, what is there any strategy that you've heard of that can fix that? Paying
2: better. It's <laughs> like just technicians, tech, technicians in South Carolina. Yeah. make more like their their pay scale is way out of whack because there's so much industry in South Carolina like they're they're like high much their their pay rate is actually like like a, a, a tier above other technicians like like by scale and it's because like you've got Boeing BMW and you know a few like a BD and like a bunch of other places but it's like where you value those technicians
1: hmm. that's is thats where because, they're gonna go is that just because there's so many competitors trying to get the technicians from your yeah. company. Huge demand. Yeah. yeah. There's a big
2: demand down there. Um, and pay scales, I don't know how that's all working out. I mean, real real estate has jumped, but pay scales have not. Right. Or like, but you could also look at like England where their engineers make like very little compared to our engineer. Our engineers are way overpaid compared to like engineers in, in England or whatever you want to call it. Britain and Brexit stuff. I don't know I the insane England, whatever. They they like I had an offer to work over there, and it was like twenty five percent less than what I was currently making. Hmm.
1: But I had a friend yeah. who worked in Switzerland, and he made double in Switzerland what he was making in Michigan. Yeah, different but, places, but the cost of living was also twice as high.
2: Yeah, yeah, and so like th- those are some of the things. The pay scales. I don't know if those guys are paid as well as they probably should be. Um, they can be hourly though, which is nice because you can make a ton of OT. But yeah, I don't love John, to to incentivize those people um, don't I, have don't have two hundred thousand dollars in college debt and then also get paid well and have a secure job. I guess that's an incentive.
0: Yeah, it's a. Uh, I just feel like a lot of the stuff starts very young, and it's like I don't know. It's the whole issue of parents always propping up their kids to go like get that advanced college degree and like do that whole thing. Um, whereas most parents aren't going to right away push their kids to try to be like a technical manufacturer, you know? Um, but Yeah. But like go, go hire go
2: hire a plumber or an electrician and see how much that costs. Like how do we change that mindset of the nation? Yeah. I mean, we, you we definitely, and, and that's probably why college costs so much is because we push so many things. people yeah, to go. Things, to, yeah. yeah and but like you look at germany right and it's they have uh apprenticeship programs like every almost every career they do they have to be an apprentice for three years like i'm going to be a landscape apprentice i'm going to be a banking apprentice like they go through this apprenticeship like a machinist apprenticeship like you go through and you do it for three years and their expectations that you're going to do that for the rest of your life and it's very like kind of like a class system but yeah, it's that's the expectation. And the US is so like maverick. You know, I'm gonna have my own small business. And, you know, that, that, that's very, like, the US, like, whatever you want to call it is, is very like, I don't need to get an instructor, I'm gonna figure this out myself. I don't need to go to like, an avalanche safety course, I'm just gonna figure it out. And then I'm gonna, you know, go and, and read it up on it myself. Or I'm gonna go and create my own business like it's a very like American mindset in my opinion yeah. and like God bless the people that do right like it's definitely good like my like Heidi does it right like my sister had her own you know photography business so that's something that is still like great but I don't know how we're gonna incentivize technical people um, besides me going to these you know seventh graders next week and be like don't be an engineer be a technician
1: <laughs> work I, with your hands kids
0: yeah I mean, I mean the bottom line is we need like you know we need all of these positions to be filled um, Just it seems like a lot of people aren't interested in any of them uh, but for the sake of time I think James and I have about 15 minutes left before we need oh, to wow. run so yeah I know uh, you already gave us pretty much what you were concerned about although you can give us other things about the future I want to hear well, what you're man. most excited about what am
2: I most excited about
0: About the future, and it could be anything, right? This could be like national, global, anything.
2: Hibachi hibachi brunch—that's what I want. I want hibachi Hibachi brunch. (laughs) I want, I want brunch hibachi style. That's interesting. I didn't (laughs) thought of that.
0: Looking on the table, Uh, right?
2: That's that's. I I always have to throw that plug in. I don't want (laughs) to do it because it's a lot of work to like have. I don't want to be in the restaurant business, (laughs) but I would go. I yeah. would love someone flipping flapjacks and doing like caricatures of different things. And then like, you know, whipping some blueberries in your mouth and then doing a little, yeah,
1: that's how you everything. That, would, yeah, that'd be, that sounds like fun. Absolutely. Yeah. The,
2: the infrastructure's already there. That's what I'm excited about guys. How about yeah. you, bro? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm probably like the least excited person about the future.
1: Um, uh... <laughs> Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. I like I can't think what you I'm don't want
0: to hibachi brunch and like efficiently manufactured things and
2: anything. There's some okay. there's some cool things. So like manufacturing, like if we go to um machine learning, well I, I shouldn't say machine learning, I should say ergonomic. So they have like teaching robots or like robotic arms and stuff that can do mundane tasks that are very poor for people's ergonomics. So you essentially work with a robot and then teach it how to do the task. And so you correct it when it makes its mistakes. And so essentially you're teaching something to do like, all right, you're you're just going to grab these things and then put them down. And it's something that like, sometimes it's just cheaper to have a person do it than to have like a whole system to do it. Cause they have to do like a quality, they do like a quality inspect too. but Like you could, you could teach an arm to do that.
1: Um, yeah, but those create repetitive motion injuries and in people. Yeah, well,
2: that's what I mean. Like, that's you're, you're 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 hoping that robotic arm is going to reduce your repetitive motion industries or yeah. uh, repetitive motion injuries.
1: Yeah. My dad, after more than 30 years in his industry, is a collection of repetitive motion injuries.
2: Yeah. Um, I'm hoping for clean water if we figure out some sort of technology to, uh, Replace or, or clean, or, or to be more efficient with our water, um, that would be huge. Because anyone west of the hundredth meridian is essentially in water debt. <laughs> we've we've created a lot of dams in the, where, in the west. Where,
0: where is the hundredth meridian? I think I'm west ne- of the hundredth.
2: Nebraska. Meridian. Ah, oh. Yeah. Good luck.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Man.
2: Yeah. Check out the like, right. Cadillac Desert. That's a good book. You'll you'll learn a lot about essentially the the marketing that sent everyone out west, saying that there is you know plenty of you know green fields. When in reality they're sending them out to a desert. So
0: <laughs> I gotta tell you, LA is pretty weird. For all the water drought we have, there's an awful lot of like large decorative fountains that adorn every
2: street. LA is so- the worst, dude. Yeah. LA, la steals water from like six different states
0: yeah i feel like i, I whenever i see one of those fountains I'm like man shouldn't we be using that to like grow our crops or something like i don't know there, were,
2: there was literal like terror like in like like terrorist activity in like the 1800s or whatever or whenever like la was being developed to, like to destroy dams and there's like like a mini like mini mafia war going on the water mafia i'm serious it was crazy and like no one knows about this stuff but like people are gonna blow up stuff with dynamite and Uh it was like to to prevent la from and la was like fighting to get all this water that essentially was out of theirs and then they took it from this place and now that place like doesn't get any water (laughs) it's um
0: yeah you, you 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 thought you maybe think of another example. You were talking about the, the repetitive motion automation, little robotic arms. Another yeah. thing we have a lot of out here in the LA area, more like SoCal, is citrus growing. And interesting fact: there is still no good automated way of picking citrus fruit. Right. So, like virtually every orange you've ever had in your life was picked by a human hand. Right. Um, and so it begs the question, like, OK, let's just say we do come up with some way, maybe a robo arm that's able to, like, identify oranges and pick them automatically. So then you don't need to have all these like citrus workers. It's a, it's the age old question, right? It's like, is that even a good thing or a bad thing when however many, like, thousands, tens of thousands of people rely on this industry for jobs? I know we humanity has encountered this all the time. But I'm, I'm wondering, is that the next wave of the Industrial Revolution is automation of those types of tasks? And then we're all going to be just... I.T. workers from now on.
2: Yeah, I'm worried about the drones. I'm worried about A.I. It's. I'm not uh, I'm not on the in the positive camp, if that makes sense. You're
0: not in the positive camp, really?
2: No, I'm not. A, I'm not about automated cars either. Because uh, I, I, imagine driving a car, right? And now something freakish happens. And the car has to make a decision. It's either going to drive you into a wall or it's going to hit three pedestrians. What does the car do?
0: Uh, yeah, I feel yeah. like... There's I, a lot I, of these I, things
2: that I don't think we thought about yet that are going to be really I, scary. You know what, though? I've, I've, I've
0: never been worried about that because although that may be true, the data has shown that self-driving cars are safer than not self-driving cars. Like even if I those believe those it. you come uh, it.
2: Over it's like, the, the the large the large majority of it, you're probably going to reduce.
0: Yeah. Um, it's like r- regardless of these things. difficult decisions, your fatality rate going to be way lower. And maybe there's yeah. going to be some where there's going to be like a horrible headline-worthy in- instance where something like that happens. But, it,
1: and in that right. case, a human has to make a decision as well. And who knows how well that's going to turn out. Well, yeah, you think
2: about this. The dang- most dangerous thing you do every day is drive your car. Uh, but... You think about how many people, how many people do it and how, you know, you're essentially it's like, I don't know, it's like prisoner's dilemma, but you have to think about it. Like Everyone else has their life and everyone else cares so much about themselves that they're not going to, they're unlikely to get into an accident with you. And that's probably what keeps us from getting into an accident with everyone on the road. Um, But then you have a certain number of individuals that, you know, aren't perfect and there's human error. And that's why every day there's an accident so yeah yeah, if you if you if you if you science that out if you um did that now what happens when you know everyone becomes used to that right you you rely upon automated driving and so now you can't have human interaction you're not allowed to drive as a human because you're not as effective so now that happens and then someone shuts down the ai or the gps system and now no one can drive anywhere because no one knows how
0: oh my goodness you're right (laughs) (laughs) we're we're so
2: vulnerable well, like we're going to, there's a certain level of competence that we should have and that should be known, um, in order to get away with those things. And, but like, you have to understand how the whole system works, right? Like what do people do when their cell phones die? People are like helpless and you need to get back to like, people need to learn how to like just do regular tasks. Yeah. And there are obviously some things you don't need them for, but like, understand, like it, if we could get people to understand how to think use it, most things you're using are using our tools, right? They're not, they're not like toys. Like a, a phone is a tool, right? And, uh, the same thing with your, your car, right? It's, it's uh, a way to get you from point A to point B safely and effectively. Um, and you need to learn how to like how it works and, and how to, and that's my own philosophy on it. A lot of people get through life. They'll never know how their phone works. They'll never know how their car works. Like I don't, I couldn't make a phone um i can't probably do any small engine repair uh without like some sort of guide and a lot of time and i'd probably do it wrong so I don't know, maybe i'm you know practice what you preach i guess but essentially we're getting to a, a point where there are a lot of things that we don't have the capability to to repair or or maintain or do that ourselves or under have that understanding it's, it's become one one level removed And that i think is dangerous uh for us to to be good at doing things or make good decisions um especially you see that with management right it's like every level that management is removed they make more and more idiotic decisions uh or you feel like that right you're like what's going on here why would that doesn't make any sense like and same thing with like kind of probably politics and things like that right every level that you're removed you're going to probably be making less informed decisions And then you're going to, it probably won't be catastrophic. um, But yeah, it's like something that I don't look forward to. It's like how far removed we get from kind of brick and mortar or like doing actual things and, and knowing things and like idiocracy, like the movie. It's like my third or fourth favorite documentary.
0: I still haven't seen that one.
2: It's good. Right there behind the Matrix, Terminator Two, and uh, Contagion.
1: <laughs> you call them documentaries. All right. Yeah.
0: All right, now we've now we've got a bonus list of Tony's favorite documentaries. This is <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, hey James, since we're running low on time, do you have any other questions
1: you wanted to get in there? I think we've covered everything I can think of. We just got to get to the important questions.
0: You already you already primed us for this, Tony. Uh, t- all this talk about being in New Jersey and you a pizza connoisseur. Well, in your time there, this is the starter question, but we can—we feel like we can go deeper with you. What is your favorite pizza topping?
2: Uh, depending on, the, like, I'm just never, I'm never, I'm never not going to say cheese because like just a, a, you should, you should always base the, the quality of, of that pizza place based on their, their cheese slice. That's your, that's your gold standard. Like oh they, yeah, do they do they have a good just cheese slice? Like that's it. And then if you talk about like mood or anything like that, are you gonna throw like are you gonna throw a pineapple on there? Are you gonna throw like green pepper, mushroom, and onion, or are you gonna throw on like there's a place in Hoboken that had uh some it was like chicken parm? They had like chicken parm on top. Chicken parm pizza? Chicken parm as a topping. So they like slice it up and then they have that on there. Yeah, it was pretty good. But like we now we're restart we talking locations, cause like
0: okay now this is the next level advanced all right
2: like in Hoboken Benny's has this you know baby sized piece of pizza like it's they have pictures of like small children next to these slices and they're relatively the same size it's inconsistent though right it goes this is Mr.
1: so the, 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 they're not like baby pizzas they're like baby they're, sized yeah pizzas. like the slice is the size of a small child it's okay. like nineteen inches or something. Oh, um, uh,
2: yeah, they're it's actually, it's quite a large slice. Yeah, yeah, it's a big slice, and it's probably the best. Like at that point in time, best bang for your buck. I think it was like three, three twenty-five, three fifty a slice, and it was like a full meal. So, I would say that was like a go-to late night. Um, and then Geo's and their, and
1: their cheese slice was pretty decent.
2: It was pretty good. Yeah, it was. It was inconsistent. That's the thing.
0: I've often found when there's a pizzeria where there's their claim to fame is just a very, very large pizza that could sometimes be a bad sign. You know, like if, if they're just going for size, is it, the was quality there?
2: it was good. Okay. All it right. There good. You go. Shout out. was but, Benny's. You said, yeah, that's Benny's, Benny, to Benny like, Taninos. And then Gio's Giovanni's is the other place that like you'd go. There's a few like Napoli's is pretty good. There's a few other ones mm-hmm. in Hoboken, but I think just like. If I go back, if I were to go back to Hoboken, I would probably get a slice at Benny's.
0: Who has better pizza, New Jersey or New York?
1: <sighs> Where in New York? Yeah, the city, the state, <laughs> a, a <laughs> all, borough. All five boroughs. because yeah, like there's that, that, that one night. slice,
2: there's that one slice downtown that's like, you have to wait for an hour and 15 minutes. And it's like, is it worth waiting that long for that one slice?
0: I remember when I so I had been living away from New York for a very long time, Florida, New Orleans, California, and I hadn't been there in a while. Like New York City, I remember I showed up and just found this random pizzeria like in Penn Station and tried it, and it was better than any pizza I'd had for the last like twelve years. I was like, oh yeah. What am I well, yeah, because
2: like when you're when you're taken away from it, right? Like you don't you don't realize what you're missing, but like also but, like the bagels, right? The bagels are so good. Bagels, yeah, but yeah,
0: the bagels it was, it was just it was just so wild because, like, this was not some award-winning pizzeria. This was like some bro in a little hole in the wall in a train station, but it was still so much better than like the best LA had to offer. Um, yeah, Tony. Yeah, your answer, your first answer of cheese pizza, I, I consider that to be the fundamental correct answer. Others may disagree. Cheese is the best. Um. Well. Now that we've talked about the most important question, Tony, let's ask you, for the viewers, the listeners rather, um, let's just say someone heard you talk and they said, man, this guy, Tony, he's got it all figured out. I want to I I just keep in touch with him. I want to connect with him. How can people find
2: you? <laughs> at Anthony-Worthington at Venmo. Just send me money. <laughs> <laughs> No, um, I'm on LinkedIn as Anthony Worthington, um, and I work for Purple right now, but that's probably, if you're a friend of a friend of, like, John's or something like that, that's probably a, a decent connection. gonna be good to go on that. Um, not really on the social media game. I don't I don't TikTok. or. You're not uh, on the gram? I am on the gram, uh, but I don't think I've posted something on the gram for over a year now. I think the, the last time... Both. When I was in like New Zealand, and like middle earth, that's where, that's when I was my last, uh, grand post. So it's, uh, it's been a while. I don't, and then whatever on Facebook, I don't think I've changed my profile picture for, you know, four years. So not, not a super active person that you'd have better luck reaching out to me on, on LinkedIn. Uh, if sure. you want to pick my brain about, yeah, I didn't even get into my quality role. That was just, I think I only got through PD, but yeah, quality. I did that quality roll at purple and then now I'm in, uh, R and D. So yeah, yeah man, wanna, this, this stuff is dense.
0: It takes a while to get through it.
2: It's yeah. I talk your off, but yeah, if anyone wants to reach out or, or talk a little more, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Fantastic. Um, all
0: right, all right Tony,
2: good to see you. I'll see you at the next family reunion. Yeah. And can't wait. <laughs>
1: Thanks That's for right. talking with us.
2: Yeah, good having, thanks for having me guys, appreciate it.